0: The global demand for meat is rising as is concerns about the health dangers, environmental toll, and animal welfare issues related to the way we produce meat today. The Good Food Institute is a nonprofit working with scientists, investors, and entrepreneurs to advance efforts to make clean meat and plant-based alternatives a commercial reality. We spoke to Liz Specht, senior scientist for the Good Food Institute about the problems with meat production today, efforts to develop alternatives, and the role biotechnology can play in creating healthier, safer, and more humane sources of meat. Liz, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks so much for having me on.
0: We're going to talk about the Good Food Institute, the future of meat, and the opportunities in clean meat. For listeners not familiar with the Good Food Institute, Can you explain what it is and and what it does?
1: Of course. The Good Food Institute is a nonprofit organization that supports the development of food technologies essentially to render animal agriculture obsolete. So these technologies fall in two main categories. The first is plant-based meat and other plant-based alternatives. We all know products like this, but there's tons of additional innovation to be had in this area. And the second area that we'll focus on more is a field called cellular agriculture, which includes the concept of clean meat, producing real meat from the cell up or farming animal cells rather than rearing and slaughtering a whole animal.
0: And what's wrong with the way meat is produced today?
1: Yeah, great question. So, this is probably not a surprise to many listeners on here, but industrial animal agriculture is, is ripe with problems and it's a far cry from how we used to raise animals. While feed conversion ratios have increased and therefore the price of meat has come down with a shift towards highly intensified animal agriculture, which in turn has increased consumption, the trade-offs have been, I would argue, absolutely catastrophic. I'll briefly touch on sustainability, public health, and animal welfare considerations. First and foremost, there's sustainability, just from a thermodynamic perspective. You're fighting an uphill battle all the way because this is an inherently inefficient system. You're funneling energy into an animal in the form of feed calories. Almost all of Voyage is being burned off in the course of the animal's basic metabolism, and you end up with a very small fraction of that energy making its way into the human food supply in the form of meat. But the sustainability concerns are actually much larger than that. Animal agriculture is a major contributor to greenhouse gas emissions, greater than actually the entire transportation sector. And it's one of the most egregious causes of air pollution, water pollution, ocean eutrophication, dead zones, habitat loss, you name it. Then there's the public health threat posed by these massive intensive operations. They're the perfect breeding ground for zoonotic disease epidemics and antibiotic resistance. We're we're increasingly seeing evidence of this. In many cases, you can trace specific antibiotic resistance mutations directly back to a farm where they emerged, and we've seen, of course, a, a slew of new forms of avian flus and swine flus where you can trace back to a patient zero who is a farm worker at one of these animal operations. Finally, there's the animal welfare aspect, and I'll add human welfare considerations here, too, since these are some of the, the most dangerous professions in the country working at these farms and slaughterhouses. Consumers are increasingly aware that this intensified industrial process is really a long way from their grandfather's chicken poop, and that's a major contributor to the massive interest we've seen in plant-based alternatives and clean meat in the last couple of years.
0: Many people may not be familiar with the term clean meat. What, what's meant by that term?
1: Sure. So this is the notion of growing meat that is the same as conventional genuine animal meat at the level of the cell, but growing it through cell culture rather than through farming and and raising the entire animal. So, it's it's using techniques that have been developed uh, in in animal cell culture to grow muscle cells directly, fat cells directly. In some cases, there are a few other cell types that are relevant, like fibroblasts that form connective tissue. So, you're really building meat at, at the cellular level but in you know, a sterile, clean environment and with much lower environmental impact and mitigating all of those, those risks we just talked about of industrialized animal agriculture.
0: We've got a biotechnology industry that's developed largely around human therapeutics. How applicable is the technology that's developed and the expertise that's evolved to this new application?
1: Yeah, so there's a ton of translatability of the work that's been developed in these other fields, like you mentioned, cell-based therapy, tissue engineering for regenerative medicine applications. We can even draw from other large-scale biological processes developed in industrial biotech, for example, Um, and a, a large... Goal of my job is to bring in scientists from all of these different fields, all flavors of engineering, life sciences, biochemistry, tissue engineering, cell biology to lend their talents to this pursuit. And we've, we've really been met with a lot of enthusiasm from folks in these various areas. I'll give you one example. A year ago we presented a poster at a cell therapy conference down in San Diego. Um my senior fellow senior scientists and I were the only ones there talking about a food application of large scale animal cell culture. Um but we were met with a lot of enthusiasm and we were asked to contribute a piece in biochemical engineering journal talking specifically about these translations from the cell based therapy industry and other life science industry uh to making clean meat.
0: In the Past few years, we've had a a number of companies that have emerged that produce both clean meat and and plant-based meat alternatives. What's the range of approaches that are out there today?
1: Yeah, so on the plant-based side of things, there are several exciting new companies in this area, listeners may be familiar with Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat and several others, who are taking a really... Uh, sort of molecular deconstructive approach. So they're looking at meat, conventional meat, and saying what at a biochemical level are the actual components of this that are contributing to the taste and the texture and all of the various sensory aspects, including things like the aroma when you put it on a grill, uh, that, that contribute to that consumer experience. And how can we replicate that experience using components found in the plant kingdom or even more broadly say the fungal kingdom or looking for you know secondary metabolites and so forth kind of across biology writ large so that's one approach is is really making these true mimics of meat but but leveraging materials not found in animals the other approach is uh, is, as we talked about this clean meat approach. And there's been kind of an explosion of startup companies in this space. Um, some of the ones that, that listeners may be familiar with are Memphis Meats. They're kind of, um, uncontroversially the furthest along. They're the first company in this fair, in this space to raise Series A funding from some, some pretty big name funders. Uh, there's several others. Um, here in the U.S., there's one called Finless Foods, focusing on this approach for uh, for fish products and seafood products. Um, there's there's several companies abroad. Israel is kind of a hotbed for innovation in this area. So there's uh, three companies in Israel. There's one in Japan. There's a couple springing up in Europe, including Mosa Meats. Uh, so there's there's been a lot of activity in this space, and they're all. Taking slightly different approaches from the perspective of what this process will actually look like at scale. And in some cases, focusing on different types of products. For example, Mosa Meat is looking exclusively at beef and particularly ground beef, whereas some of the others are uh, kind of more diverse in what types of products they're, they're pursuing. So there's been a lot of activity and on the clean meat side, this has really all happened in the last 18 to 24 months. Just a few years ago, there was only one or two companies working on this.
0: As I think about the many challenges any company is going to face to, to do this, one of the biggest challenges is consumers. There's an expectation for, for what meat is. It, it's one thing to, to grow cells. It's another thing to produce an end product that has the taste and texture of meat. How good are we at doing that?
1: Yeah. So this is is a moving target as the technology develops. If you think about various types of meat products, they kind of reside on a spectrum of sophistication. So you've got some products that are much easier to produce from a technical perspective, for example, ground meat products. And and many of the early prototypes we've seen in the clean meat space have indeed been these types of ground meat products. Um, The first kind of public tasting and demonstration of this technology was a burger that was done by Dr. Mark Post in the Netherlands. Um, after that, we saw the first, the first uh, prototype from Memphis Meats was a meatball. So as you might imagine, it's much easier to grow kind of discrete muscle fibers and then kind of bind them together into a final product like that. What's more difficult, but ultimately is kind of the holy grail of this endeavor, is to have these more sophisticated, real, you know, thick tissue-structured products. So I envision something like a marbled steak. And you can imagine this is, is where, you know, even though we're further off from that, from an R&D perspective right now, This is where a clean meat approach can really shine relative to a plant-based approach. You can imagine it it would be quite hard to use plant-based materials to replicate all of that precise texture and mouthfeel and so forth that comes from um, these very complex arrangements of, of cell types of of different flavors so you know fat cells and muscle cells intertwined in that example
0: so what's your expectation do you see us getting beyond ground beef to to an actual steak
1: i do so i think there's there's a lot of technologies that are being built off of from tissue engineering fields that are are you know arising out of folks working on organ regeneration and things like that but these are, are fundamental technologies to do with scaffolding materials how can we increase the porosity of those and design perfusion systems that actually allow us to grow these thicker tissues um how can we use you know in some cases the scaffold itself to help us guide uh with some spatial resolution the way in which cells are differentiating within various microenvironments within that scaffold so there's a lot we can build off of there and if you think about it this application is in some ways much easier to achieve than, than some of the biomedical uh, kind of original pursuits of these technologies, because we're not asking for a truly functional muscle in this case, right? We don't need to have all of the complex vasculature and we don't need to have nerves integrated within it. It doesn't need to eventually, you know, be suitable for implantation into a living system. We just need it to recapitulate the structure and and, you know essentially the the nutritional content and the mouthfeel of a meat product. So it's a much easier ask in terms of a design requirements perspective.
0: As you look at the field and and think about the challenges, where are the, the biggest technical challenges today?
1: Yeah, so I think, you know, the big one that's that's obviously at the front of everyone's mind is getting the cost down. So there have been some companies that put out numbers about, you know, here's where we're at in terms of cost per pound of meat. When I see those, which are still in, in the ballpark of, you know, say a few thousand dollars per pound of meat, that's really not not a relevant number from a commercialization perspective. It's like asking, you know, what did it cost to build the first iPhone prototype? That's not at all reflective of what that will ultimately cost the consumer. Um, so that's that's one area where a lot of work is, is being focused, and we've seen tremendous progress on that front so far. Um, you can look at kind of the raw materials that goes into this process, uh, all of the various bulk components. That comprise cell culture media, the vast majority of them are, are very cheap large scale inputs like salts and sugars and amino acids. And they're pretty straightforward techniques to bring down the cost of, of some of the lower concentration components in there. So that's where we've, we've spent some time, um, doing our analysis of what kind of price points do we think we could get to in an industry like this. So cost is one. Certainly, scale and uh, automating the process, and and developing really large-scale infrastructure for a full industrial-scale production process is another area where there's a lot of work being done. We have good proxies for large-scale cell culture processes from things like the CHO cell industry, biopharma, etc. That I think we can adapt some aspects of that to this, but there will be unique Uh, needs and considerations when you get to the stage of these thicker tissues where you're, you know, perfusing nutrients through, through a scaffold and so forth at larger scale.
0: How about the regulatory environment? Is the FDA up to speed on this? Is this something where the USDA is going to want to have a say?
1: Yeah, so this is a really robust area of discussion among the various companies right now. Um, one promising thing is that they were they're all very keen to work together on this and I think that's a sign of, of industry maturity to regulators even though this is you know a relatively young industry um, so those conversations are still underway um, you know depending on on the product that you're making there's potentially some questions about agency jurisdiction um, but I think, you know regulators are are keen to have a very straightforward pathway that is not um overly overly burdensome to the producers but but gives consumers full confidence that these products are safe and that you know there's an inspection structure in place and so forth uh there was actually a, a report put out by the national academies back in March of 2017 uh, that was looking at future products of biotechnology that were anticipated to be coming down the regulatory pipeline in the next five to ten years was their their time horizon for that report, uh, and they identified cell cultured meat, as they call it, clean meat, as we call it, um, as an area of high growth potential. And the reason that that por- report was commissioned was to give sort of a heads up to the regulatory agencies so that they could start to prepare for the new types of products that, that are anticipated to enter the regulatory pipeline so that they can kind of grease the skids and be be prepared to regulate those products and, and assess the safety of those products um, without delaying the industry's development.
0: You spoke a bit about the challenge of, of both scale and cost. Any sense on what clean meat will need to do to be cost-competitive? Does it have to be at the same price point as, as conventional meat for consumers to want to adopt it?
1: Yeah, so there has been some consumer studies that have been done that are kind of probing, you know, what sort of a premium might consumers be willing to pay for a product that exhibits some of these, these benefits. And there's, you know, of course, benefits kind of societally or socially with regards to environmental impact and so forth, but there are also really clear-cut consumer benefits in the form of um, higher food safety because there's no you know salmonella or E. coli contamination on these products, they're likely to have much longer shelf life for the same reason and so forth. So there are consumer reasons that that uh, folks might be motivated to pay a premium. And the studies so far show that there is there is tolerance for premium. We can also look at just kind of the, the willingness to pay for uh, new food products that are seen as, as kind of novelties if we look at the plant-based space. So take, for example, the Impossible Burger. People are, are flocking to restaurants that sell the Impossible Burger, and sometimes they're paying you know, $18, $20 a plate for a burger um, because there's, you know there's, there's a lot of enthusiasm for using these new technology approaches to make a really good product. So I think it's likely when clean meat first enters the market, it probably will be sold at a premium and, and may focus more on kind of higher-end premium products. But if we look at the raw inputs to the process, I think it's highly likely that once this reaches significant scale, that this truly can be price competitive uh, with sort of mainstream, you know, the, the bulk, vast majority of, of meat consumption, those types of products.
0: At the same time, are people exploring enhancements? So you might have a hamburger with that's high in omega-3 fatty acids.
1: Yeah, some companies have certainly talked about that. I think for the first range of products, it's likely that folks will will just be trying to directly recapitulate the exact specs of existing meat products. Um, But there's certainly the capability to do some really – Creative things. So you can, like you mentioned, you can alter the lipid profile. You can maybe reduce the amount of cholesterol. You can even think of, you know, doing this process with meat types or, or species of origin that are kind of unique. You know, having some some novelty meats that you you wouldn't typically eat because they're not animals we've we've domesticated and farmed in that way. Um, so I think there's potential to to really offer the consumer a lot more options. But I think the first wave of products will focus on the types of meat that that we're used to and we know and love.
0: We've had a a fair bit of resistance to GMO foods. I'd argue these are poorly understood by consumers, but do you think clean meat will face similar types of resistance and fears?
1: I think the clean meat industry is, is really taking a hard look at some of the lessons learned with GMOs and the approach that they're taking is to try to be really upfront and transparent with consumers about how this process is done, what the benefits are and so forth. I think that wasn't necessarily, um, that wasn't necessarily put forth to consumers in advance for some of those early GMO crops. And I think consumers, you know, in a lot of studies that are looking at, at consumer, uh, tolerance of, of technology in their food and your processing methods and so forth, it, it's clear that if you make it clear to the consumers, if you communicate to consumers what the benefit to them is, they're much more open to these various technologies rather than having to assume that they benefit the producer or allow the producer to to cut costs or cut corners in some way. Um, so I think, you know, the clean meat industry is very keen to um, to be proactive in their messaging and, and reaching out to consumers, and their real benefit is that they can be so transparent about their process, as opposed to, you know, current industrialized animal agriculture. You can actually invite consumers to come and tour a clean meat production facility in a way that you would never offer for, you know, today's slaughterhouses or, or so-called factory farms.
0: How far are we from walking into the neighborhood safely and buying a package of clean meat, and what's it going to take to get there?
1: Yeah, so I think the first the first places where we'll probably start to see these products are probably on the food service side, so something akin to like the Impossible for the food burger rollout. Um, so I think those types of products are probably in the ballpark of maybe three to five years away. That's kind of common consensus among the various companies in this space. Um, but, of course, add, add a bit of a, a price hike and a premium um, for us to reach a sort of mainstream, uh, large-scale Meet at at the retail counter. I think that's that's a few years further out. But there's so many market dynamics that will contribute to really growing this industry that I I think it's hard to speculate at this point. One of the big um, accelerants that could really speed development of this whole sector is is really getting folks with the right technical backgrounds involved. So through my experience interacting with these companies. It's kind of a recurring theme that one of the biggest bottlenecks right now is, is this technical talent. We need folks with really stellar scientific and engineering backgrounds to really drive this innovation. To a large extent, the investment capital has shown up. We've seen, you know, investors like Bill Gates and Richard Branson and DFJ, which led investments in visionary technologies like SpaceX and Tesla. These folks have all shown up and invested in companies like Memphis Meats in their latest round. So there's, there's a lot of market enthusiasm and a lot of, of money, frankly, um, that's that's ready to go into this space. But we really need the right technical skills uh, to bring this forward. And I think I think you know a lot of those skill sets exist in uh, either companies or academic researchers who are, for the most part, for the most part focused on biomedical applications um, so like I said that's that's a big part of my job is seeing how we can get those folks involved. Liz
0: Breck, senior scientist for the Good Food Institute. Liz thanks so much for your time today.
1: Thanks so much it was a pleasure to be here I appreciate it.
0: That was great so much better than last time.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you got I, the timing I, right that time. <laughs> I, I
0: really uh, do appreciate your patience and your willingness and uh, we'll try to get it live Thursday.
1: Sounds good. Great. I'm looking yeah. forward to it. Send Thanks me a so link much. when it's when it's out.
0: We'll do. Take care. Great. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week.